This is a special Uncommon Sense podcast for 3RRR-FM with Amy Mullins. The interview you're about to hear is with Kate Kirkpatrick. Kate is a philosopher and teaches philosophy at Regent's Park College at the University of Oxford. Kate joined me to talk about her biography, Becoming Beauvoir, A Life. It examines the great French writer, feminist and philosopher Simone de Beauvoir. Beauvoir's life and work has often been distorted and overshadowed by her working and romantic relationship with Jean-Paul Sartre. Kate debunks some of the major misconceptions about Beauvoir's life and shares just how influential and original Beauvoir's intellectual contribution was and is. And I'm delighted now to have with me Kate Kirkpatrick, who is a tutorial fellow in philosophy at Regent's Park College at the University of Oxford, based over in the UK. And she's the author of a book, Becoming Beauvoir. And uh, it is a really fascinating read, and it's one um, that I've been thoroughly enjoying, really luxuriating in being such a fan of Simone de Beauvoir, who um, is obviously a great French thinker, philosopher, and writer. And um, we'll get into how she defines herself very soon. But I do want to welcome Kate now and also to say a big congratulations on this book, which clearly a lot of work and research has gone into. So thank you so much, Kate, for joining me. Thank you very much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. It's really great to have you on the show because, I mean, I have actually been thinking about the ideas that have come up in this book for about a year since it came out and seeing the reception to it within philosophy and a number of other people who've looked at existentialist philosophers like Sky Cleary, who's also an Australian but based over in New York. And it was really great to see people to start to open their minds to the things that you were saying in this book. And we will get to some of that in a moment. But first, up, I wanted to ask about your interests and background in a scholarly sense, because it's my understanding that you had your introduction or your early um, research in philosophy to uh, Jean-Paul Sartre, who features very heavily in this book, but is obviously not the main character. And I, I just wanted to get an understanding of where your philosophical passions lie. Well, thank you. That's a great, that's a great question. It is the case that my previous publications in academic writing have focused mainly on Sartre and existentialism more broadly. But in fact, my interest in Beauvoir generated around the same time. So after I finished my undergraduate degree, I worked in publishing for five years, and I knew that I wanted to return to academia. But I wasn't quite sure what I was interested in enough to spend a doctorate on. (laughs) (laughs) And so I... um, my interests are in philosophy and theology. So I'm interested in philosophy and sort of parts of the subdiscipline. Mm. And so I'm interested in philosophy and literature, and I'm interested in philosophy and religion. And I've always loved French literature and culture. And so originally I chose to work on Sartre because his philosophy combined literature and religious thought as well. But at the same time that I was developing my doctoral proposal, I had a friend with whom I used to meet to do a conversation exchange. So one of the things about living in Oxford is that there are lots of people who are eager to learn different languages. So I used to meet once a week with this friend and we'd speak half French and half English. And for my birthday, she gave me a copy of Simone de Beauvoir's prize-winning novel, The Mandarins. 
So alongside working on this, the, the philosophical project on Sartre, I started reading into Beauvoir and reading The Second Sex. So over the course of the years that followed, I read a lot of scholarly literature about existentialism and about Sartre's philosophy, and I became increasingly suspicious of the way that Beauvoir was described, because she was someone who Sartre scholars would write about often as a historical witness to Sartre's greatness, mm. instead of as someone who contributed to the development of existentialism herself. Apart from the second sex, I mean, you, you can't really deny the significance of the second sex. But even there, I kept encountering this word applied, that Beauvoir applied Sartre's ideas to the woman question. So I have to say that it was never my intention to write a biography of Simone de Beauvoir <laughs> until quite recently. But eventually my suspicion grew into shock, frankly, and, and then the feeling that something needed to be done about this. Yeah, it seems unjust. And I think that's an understatement, to be honest. The second sex really kept me company. When I was traveling through France, I felt like that was such a great time to immerse myself in it in my 20s. And um, it just, every page to me was a revelation and made so much sense. And to then hear and read about in this book, the fact that others have suggested that wasn't her own original thought is really just absurd to me. But I can see how this constant sexism and discrimination that goes on with women who are intellectuals and thinkers in their own right is um, obviously a very, very long historical phenomenon. And it comes up again and again in this book, how she's constantly, I guess, undermined and then also her own self-confidence undermined, which is once again surprising to me. What I love about this book was how you bring it back to Simone de Beauvoir and who she is as a person and that that is actually an important part of her philosophical thought and her literary writing. And I wanted to bring up what you also raise in the book, which is the two kind of traditional approaches that one often has or sees in philosophy when talking about any major figure, but particularly if we're thinking about philosophy, which is there are kind of two main approaches, and one is heavily biographical um, and seems to distort the picture, and the other it almost takes it so far out of the picture that it kind of ahistoricizes things and and really takes it out of the context of which it was born out of. So I wanted to ask you what your approach was in this book. How did you approach Simone? So my aim was to navigate between those approaches and to look for the kinds of conceptual abstractions that philosophers like to think are true of humans in general, but also to pay attention to the concrete historical situation that was the condition of Beauvoir's thinking what she did. So the, the two approaches that you outline are, are sometimes referred to as compartmentalizing, on the one hand, that life belongs in a separate compartment to the work, or reducing the work to the life. And I didn't want to say, look, Beauvoir's philosophy is just, it's all autobiography, because I don't think that's the case. There's more to say about autobiography and whether it's philosophy, and I'll come back to that. But neither did I want to say that the life should be kept completely separate, because Beauvoir herself was committed to the view that there should be integrity. She wanted to have integrity between what she thought and how she lived. And at some points, she came to view her thinking as, as morally wrong, and therefore to, to sort of judge retrospectively that she hadn't she hadn't lived as well as she could. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a really important aspect of what the philosophical life can be, that reflectiveness on how to live and the practice of living. 
So yeah, so my, my attempt was to, to look at how she lived, but also to raise questions that I do think are recurring human questions about the importance of love in human life and you know whether there's a meaning in life, what it might mean to have a personal identity. But of course, Beauvoir is a skeptic about that because she's an existentialist. But I think in, in her case, the philosophy is just so rich that I wanted to weave it through the life, partly because that's how it developed in time as she became a different sort of person. So just come back to the autobiography point. Beauvoir, after she wrote The Second Sex, had many letters from readers, that obviously from her intellectual kind of milieu in Paris, but also from women who said, why have you written this book in a thousand pages of dense philosophical jargon? It's too important to be so inaccessible to many of France's readers. And so in the 1950s, she turned to writing the four volumes of autobiography. I don't think she knew there were four at the beginning, but she, she started the first. And in the beginning of The Memoirs of a Dutiful Daughter, she said that she wanted to describe her own childhood using the theory of the second sex, but without the language of philosophy and psychoanalysis. So she was sort of making of her own life an example of the theory of the second sex. And it was only at that point that she reached a much wider audience with her feminist work. And shortly thereafter, the women's liberation movement in France kicked off. And what I find interesting is that her autobiographies, they're not considered philosophy by many. They're considered works of literature. They've been added to the aggregation in France in literature, but not philosophy. And by contrast, if you look at someone like Rousseau, Rousseau wrote his Confessions, which is an autobiographical document, and it is considered a work of philosophy. Uh, if you look at St. Augustine, for example, who wrote the famous Confessions, there you have the passionate interiority of a person thinking through the meaning of his life and, and the history of his own life, along with philosophical questions, and that's considered philosophy. So I'm curious, to put it mildly, mm. about why in Beauvoir's case, thinking about becoming a woman is not considered philosophy. Yeah. Oh, my blood's boiling right now. I mean, the whole second sex is about creating this category of other. And it reminds me that women's ideas and thinking is often put in a separate category intellectually, even when we're studying scholarly topics in history, for example, there's always a women's week or a gender week. There's not a gender lens throughout the entire course. And it just annoys me. So yeah, I'm not surprised, but also really disappointed that that's the case, given she's so influential. Yeah, it is. It is. It is disappointing. And it's not surprising to me anymore, but I wish it was. (laughs) Yeah, no doubt you're teaching your students the right way of doing things. Well, I I teach them many ways and let them decide for themselves which is the right (laughs) way, but yes. (laughs) A true academic. I was thinking before, I mean, I'm trying to remember which person it was in Simone de Beauvoir's um, life who was saying that, was it something like her life was philosophy or philosophy was her life? There was something about her life and philosophy being so intertwined that they couldn't be separated. Yes, so she she wrote herself that there is no divorce between philosophy and life in an essay in the 1940s, and that every living step is a philosophical choice. And this is um, a text that I think is quite important. It's not the only place in her work where she says that she wants integrity between living and thinking. But yeah, I think that's one of the places where she puts it most beautifully. And it seems that throughout her life, that's exactly what she was doing, whether she achieved it well or not at different points is another thing and no human being is perfect and you certainly show what her flaws are as well as what her strengths are. I wanted to go back to her early years because it's something that I feel is rarely ever 
written about or spoken of. And um, it certainly surprised me because I wasn't aware of her upbringing or her childhood and also the role that religion did play given her mother, Francoise, was a devout Catholic and a very, I guess, strong character in her life. And her and her sister really struggled with a lot of the stifling types of management of their behaviour and lives. But I just wanted to ask you, given also that you do have an interest in theology as well, What was Beauvoir grappling with in her early years, in her formative years of her teens and 20s? Because I know that you do focus a lot of attention on her diaries, which seem to be a very, very important resource that hasn't been able to be utilised. And I guess the other fact is that we haven't really had access to those diaries for that long, or at least in the English-speaking world. So in terms of her grappling with religion as well in those early years, what kind of role did that play? Yeah, so I think it was extremely significant. So I want to comment first on on your comment that you hadn't heard so much about her her childhood, because I think this this is uh, it's really important because many discussions of Beauvoir, at least philosophically, often begin with the point at which she met Sartre, mm. as though her life up to that point was insignificant. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I think you know. Given her own theory of, of how human beings develop, it's nonsense. And so I wanted to, f- to focus on her childhood because I think in feminism, more broadly, there's often a lot of negativity towards religion or outright dismissal of religion instead of recognizing that in feminist history, many feminists have rooted their claims to equality in theological sources or religious sources. Mm. Um, And I think now one of the areas I find interesting are the kind of conflicts between certain forms of so-called Western feminism and religious women in contexts that are not predominantly Christian, so especially in Muslim countries. So this is, it's very interesting to me, the, the relationship between feminism and religion more broadly. But in Beauvoir's case, she was raised by a Catholic mother and a secular father. So in, in France, there's this culture of uh, laicisme, the, the kind of laic or sec- secular culture. And her father very much belonged to that side of the French intellectual commitment and her mother was devout and so she she says in her memoirs that she attributes her desire to question to being brought up in this environment where radically different visions of the world were presented to her from the beginning yeah but in childhood she was very passionately catholic herself Uh, she wanted to become a nun and in in her teenage years she worked for a catholic social justice movement called the equipe sociale teaching in poor communities in paris and so she was she was very much committed to catholic thought but also to this part of catholicism which thinks that social justice is an important part of what it means to be a christian and then she became more and more interested in philosophy and at that time france was receiving the works of kierkegaard and nietzsche And so we know from her student diaries that she was thinking about things like whether there could be a meaning to her life in the wake of the death of God, because she was exposed to different forms of atheism. And so for her, these were very personal matters, because uh, like I've said already, she did want this integrity between thinking and living. And and so it wasn't intellectually defensible that there was a God. This was going to transform her life pretty dramatically. So yes, so she... 
I mean, it's it's a it's an involved story. No, I know, <laughs> and it's in the book, so I don't I don't want to say too much about it. But I think she carried forward with her what she called her thirst for the absolute. So she does reject belief in God, but she at various points in her later writing she talks about her desire for the absolute, for this kind of this being who would be the maker of the universe and the person who sees things without any of the imperfections that that human perspective usually involves. Mm, it's an understandable desire, really, and it seems like it's a very common one. And um, the reason why I also loved this book was because it did pay a lot of attention to her early years. And it seems like if you ignore these key parts before she meets Sarch, you're really actually ignoring or perhaps even falling into a danger of misinterpreting her work and also her development. And we'll get to that in just a second, but I did want to raise one other point around religion, which was that she used religion in a way, as you say, to see that boys and girls were equal because they both had souls. And that to me was really interesting, was to see that she she kind of had this moment um, of grappling with that and thinking, well, actually she was reassured by religion in, in a sense. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, I mean, this is, um, there's a particular Christian doctrine that has inspired feminists from at least the 17th century, because in the, in the first book of the Bible in Genesis, when there's the, the account of creation, it says that both man and woman were created in the image of God. So there's this humanity is created in God's image male and female, according to Genesis. And the levelers in England use this text to argue that if men and women were both in the image of God, then they should both be able to speak and have authority in the church and outside the church eventually. So I think different kinds of Christian teaching, whether it's about souls or the image of God, have have inspired feminists quite a lot in the sort of well, you could probably trace it back further than the 17th century, but it's quite clearly there in some 17th century texts. It is. It's a, such an interesting subject, and sadly, I can't keep asking about it. But maybe <laughs> another time. Um, in terms of philosophy and Beauvoir, the student, she went to the Sorbonne, and I know that Jean Paul went to an entirely different institution, the École Normale Supérieure. And I know that you raise in this book that there's a very clear distinction and many um, people in France would kind of know the associations with different schools that people were going to. And of course, Beauvoir also knew that. But I also, I did want to bring in the fact that you highlight in the book, Simone really wanted to do philosophy and she was very, very driven to do that. But she actually had pushback from her parents about pursuing this life this life of thinking, which it's clear was an internal driver for her from her very, very early years in childhood. And I wanted to ask about her life as a a philosophy student. It was fascinating to read about. And I guess it it covers that period of time just before she meets Jean-Paul Sartre and what it was that she was thinking about in her early life. And one of those areas in particular was freedom. And I think that also really struck me was, oh, this thing that we think of as being associated with such is something that she was thinking about before she met him. And that just really struck me. And you bring in some of the influences in Beauvoir's life, some of the philosophical influences and why she was thinking about freedom. Obviously, it was also part of her really important exams. So that was one of the reasons. But I wanted to ask a little bit about her early thinking around freedom and why she was so interested in this particular area. 
Yes. Well, why she's interested in this particular area, I think there's a kind of boring answer to that, which is that everyone who studies philosophy has to study freedom. <laughs> whether yep. you're studying it in political philosophy or whether you're studying it from the point of view of questions of freedom and determinism. Mm. And so I'll say I'll say more about that. So that's the boring answer, that if you read philosophy, you will read some things on, on this concept. Um, but in Beauvoir's case, she read a particular philosopher, Alfred Fouillet, in her, her Catholic high school textbook. And Fouillet had a particular idea of freedom, which was in disagreement with some of the more famous French theorists of freedom. So Rousseau said that man is born free, but everywhere in chains. So there's this idea that we have this innate freedom and that living in society is a, a form of bondage. And Fouillet claimed that one is not born, but rather becomes free. And he thought that freedom was something that you aspire to as a human being. And so we, we have to start distinguishing between different kinds of political freedom and what uh, might be in the French tradition more accurately described as a spiritual freedom. So in, in Fouillet's case, he thought that the idea of freedom itself inspired us so much that the desire for freedom could override other desires. So for example, if you are a smoker, you if you are an addicted smoker, then you will have desire for cigarettes. But if you desire to be free <laughs> of uh, smoking, then that desire for freedom, not easily, I mean, it's not, it's not, it's not like, every, it's widely known that it's not an easy task, <laughs> but that desire for freedom can override other desires. And so Beauvoir read Fouillet, and she read Rousseau, and she read many other philosophers of freedom, and she became suspicious that this freedom was, uh, whichever concept you adopt, was presented as the birthright of men. And it was taken to be against nature for men to be unfree. By contrast, she thought that it was taken to be against nature for women to refuse to submit to forms of unfreedom, and in particular to the domination of men. So she, she began just approaching these questions because they were in her philosophy textbook. Uh, but quickly she made this link between conceiving of freedom in different ways and criticizing the conceptions uh, for assuming a male standpoint, or at least for being hypocritical and not extending that kind of freedom to all Yeah, and there was some really interesting quotes from Beauvoir around this and bringing in particularly human relationships and love relationships and the issue of freedom. And obviously, if we cast our minds back to the time that Beauvoir is living in, which you do so beautifully in this book, the position of women in France is very different even from the position of women in Australia who got the vote far earlier than French women did. And it's really shocking that that's the case, but there were so many things that women in France didn't have legally um, and that they were also similarly to many or most Western countries expected to marry and expected to not have a vocation or a career as such. And that was something that came later on. And so I wanted to ask a little bit about this connection with love and relationships, because it's not just about, I guess, a touchy-feely thing about what is love, but it's also a very pragmatic, real situation that women were grappling with in a very real sense. And some women kind of just passively accepted it. And then other women like Beauvoir did not passively accept this situation. And one of the quotes that 
I really liked was she said that what she wanted in her life was, quote, a love that accompanies me through life, not that absorbs all my life. She thought that love should not make all else disappear, but should simply tint it with new nuances. And um, I'm sure her position probably evolved and changed the way she might have expressed it. But I, I really wanted to ask about her conception of love and how it's tied to this idea of freedom and agency and crafting your own path. Yeah, that's a great question. So I think that one of the central themes of Beauvoir's work is this concept of love. And it's a kind of existentialist cliche that that freedom is uh, central to existentialism. But in Beauvoir's case, she was unwilling to give up on the centrality of love in human life. And partly that's because her philosophy includes a developmental component. So before she wrote The Second Sex, she wrote two works of moral philosophy in the 1940s. Pyrrhus and Cineas and the Ethics of Ambiguity. And there she says, partly responding to Sartre's philosophy, that it is inseparable from the experience of being human to care about how you are seen by other people. So in Being in Nothingness, Sartre's magnum opus from 1943, he had a very pessimistic view of human relationships, where he said that ultimately humans just oscillate between what he called being in the subject position or the object position. And basically, either you're dominated or you're submissive. And there's no such thing in being in nothingness as reciprocity, where you engage with each other on an even plane. And Beauvoir said, look, if you want to understand being human, you need to look at it in a kind of what we would now call a lifespan developmental psychological approach. What does it mean in childhood that you want to be seen by others? Well, in childhood, you want, she thought, to have parents who affirm the value of what you do. And that when a child shows a parent a drawing, they're not doing it because they want their parents to be indifferent. They want affirmation. (laughs) And she thinks that... um, as much as adults would like to claim to be indifferent to the desire for the affirmation of others, it remains an important component of human life. And she thinks of this in, in terms of love, I think largely because of the Augustinian background of the Catholicism in which she grew up. So St. Augustine, his theory of what it means to be human is that we will always love. We will not always love the things that are good for us. We will not always desire the things that are good for us. But our lives are shaped by what we love. Mm. And in Beauvoir's case, she saw in childhood, her parents had a relationship that changed over time, but it was a relationship in which her mother had no choices. And her mother adopted an approach of a sacrificial devotion. She kind of saw it as her Via Della Rosa, her sacrificial path that she needed to stay in this marriage and raise her children and, and be a good Catholic and mother. But Beauvoir didn't think that either of her parents were showing the kind of love that she thought was one of the beautiful things about humanity. <laughs> yeah, And so, so she goes on and she thematizes this in various places. So in her student diaries, one of the things that I was really dis- excited to find is that she's already thinking about the philosophy of love when she's 18 years old. And she's thinking, this is too important to reject altogether. Because one option is to say, look, I'm just, I'm not going to I'm not going to get involved in these kinds of relationships. But she doesn't think that's really going to work. And so she describes two vices of love. So two ways that love can go wrong. One by being excessive and the other by being deficient. 
So she calls one narcissism, which is similar to the kind of usual sense of the word, which is where someone in a loving relationship, a dyadic loving relationship, focuses too much on themselves. And on the other pole, you have what she calls devotion, where the devoted lover constantly tries to do what they think is good for the other person, but never actually asks the other person whether that is what they want. Mm. <laughs> so they, so there's this kind of, but I'm completely devoted to you. I don't think about myself. But in actual fact, it fails really to be authentic love because in authentic love, there has to be equilibrium or reciprocity between both people. And so what, she, what she's saying is that ultimately authentic love involves a moral commitment on behalf of both parties and that it is an ongoing task. It's not something that you get once that sticks around forever. Mm. And yeah, so she develops this starting in her teens and then in her 40s comes back to it. Well, in her 30s and 40s, but there's a there's a window of time where there's no written record of her thinking about that. It is great that her diaries have offered this insight. One of the related sections or quotes from the book in the second chapter was about marriage as well, because that's obviously related. And you say that she concluded that marriage is, quote, fundamentally immoral because, in fact, and I'm now going to quote again, um, that every choice was, quote, constantly in the making. It is repeated every time that I become conscious of it. And so she wondered, how could you make this major life choice once, perhaps in your 20s, and you're making that choice for yourself for the future of 40 years? And maybe that does work out for some people, but that question around what makes a person and that they're constantly making choices and and they're becoming, it seems like she believes that's fundamentally incompatible with a concept like marriage. Yes. So when she's 18, she comes to that conclusion. And I think, I don't know if she would have stuck to it altogether, because later on, she says that it's true that she refused Sartre's proposal of marriage. It's less widely known. He actually proposed to at least four women he was engaged before he met Simone de Beauvoir, but he failed the aggregation the year before he and Beauvoir both took it. And after the failing the exam, the family of his fiance called off the marriage. You know, there's this kind of legend that they were they both refused bourgeois conventions, but in, at, at several points in his life, Sartre was willing to enter into marriage. Beauvoir, on the other hand, I think she wouldn't have said that all marriage is immoral later in her life because she's willing to acknowledge that there are joint projects. And marriage would be such a joint project. Mm. Uh, so if you decide to commit yourself to someone else and to keep reaffirming that commitment as a joint project, then I think you could get a Beauvoirian conception of moral marriage. <laughs> but certainly in her teenage years, in her teenage years, she thought it was um, a really bad deal. And understandably so. I mean, yeah. women in France didn't get the vote until 1944. They first exercised it in 1945. In terms of the ability to open bank accounts, they had to wait about two more decades to do that without a male relative. And on the subject of the, the Sorbonne and the ENS, which you brought up earlier, there was a, a quite amusingly entitled uh, ENS for ladies, for young, pour les jeunes filles, for the young ladies, which opened at the beginning of, well, it was open in the beginning of the 20th century. Uh, but women were not admitted to the ENS, uh, where the men went, until the 1980s. So in terms of women's access to the vote or to bank accounts or to parental rights or even to study in the most prestigious halls of learning, the change was slow. 
Very, very, very slow. That does bring me to the introduction of Sartre and the École Normale Supérieure, which was obviously, as you can tell, like a very revered place to study. And there were three men, um, young men, in a group. And Simone was introduced to one of them in particular, who she kind of was far more interested in at the very beginning than Sartre, which also is something that we don't really know unless we've read your book or, or are more aware of things. And I just wanted to ask about that initial meeting and then how their early relationship developed in a philosophical and friendship sense, because it seems like that has formed the crux of their relationship over the entire span of their lifetimes. Yes. So this, I find this, this part funny. I really chuckled when I was reading her, her student diaries because for months, Simone de Beauvoir actually avoided meeting Sartre. So she had met this young man, René Mahou, and he was a love interest of hers. And she spent months with Mahou kind of being quite dreamy. <laughs> <laughs> but, but enjoying enjoying the discussions of philosophy. In fact, Mao is the one who gave her the um, the nickname Castor or the Beaver uh, because she was so industrious and hardworking. So she she was enjoying the company of men because she over the this sort of period in the 1920s when she's leaving the Catholic girls' school suddenly she's exposed to a different range of ideas, but also to a much more rigorous intellectual conversation. Um, so she spent time with Mo, and Sartre and Mo knew each other, and Sartre really wanted to meet Beauvoir. And uh, so one of the first instances where he attempted to arrange this, Beauvoir sent her sister, Hélène, <laughs> and she told Hélène to tell Sartre a lie about um, her being out of town. And uh, Hélène came home and said, I don't know what Mo is on about. Like, this is Jean-Paul is not very interesting. <laughs> but if he kept persisting. And so eventually she joined this small study group in the run-up to their uh, oral examinations. And she was very impressed by Sartre's intellectual generosity. So she described the way in which he took pains in helping this small group of students revise. And she, she, she kind of grew into having quite a lot of respect for his, his intellect. But what's fascinating from the point of view of the legendary couple is that within weeks she had grown to have very strong feelings for him. But she also wrote in her diaries uh, that if Sartre was going to play a central role in her life, it was, quote, neither in her body or her heart were there many others could be, but that he was the incomparable friend of her thought. And so very early on, she realizes that what's what brings them together, if you imagine being a, a somewhat intellectually lonely young Catholic woman, and then meeting someone who shares your passion, not only for philosophy, but also for literature, because Beauvoir just had a tremendous appetite for reading. So someone where you don't have to explain plot lines or, or say what you mean by uh, talking about Kant or, or, or Plato or whatever it is that you want to talk about, that's a tremendous connection. And so what was fascinating from my point of view is learning that very early on, she identified that as the thing that made their relationship something she wanted to commit to for the long term. Yeah, it seems so, so important. And it kind of 
to me signals um, a greater importance in any relationship is having that other foundation, not just a romantic foundation, but the friendship foundation and an, a kind of meeting of the minds is something that's so special. It sounds like it was very, very important in terms of their development of their philosophical ideas, which I do want to get to in just a tick. Um, but one of the things that you raise throughout this book as being one of the, the huge things that people have been so fixated upon when we talk about Beauvoir and Sartre is their romantic and particularly sexual relationship and the kind of grand agreement that they came up with. I believe it was in the Luxembourg Gardens. Was it near the Medici Fountain? That's right. That's right. Yeah, it's a beautiful fountain. Yes, it's a good setting for this kind of conversation. Could you share with us what they discussed and how early it was into their friendship? Yes. So this was in 1929. And the way the story goes is that Sartre wanted to be this kind of adventurer. He had great plans to go off and study and travel around the world. And so he, he, he presented himself as someone who wasn't going to commit to a conventional life. So they had this conversation in which they agreed that uh, they would be each other's necessary relationship, but that they could have contingent relationships on the side. So this is sometimes referred to as a polyamorous, like an early form of polyamorous commitment. and. What's fascinating is that it's provoked a lot of controversy subsequently. So some people are inspired by it as an example of a kind of relationship where there is freedom and at the same time a kind of fidelity. But many feminists have taken it as a, a concession of Beauvoir to Sartre's libido, basically, which I don't think is historically justified. So there's been a lot of criticism of Beauvoir's participation in, in this relationship. And surprisingly, less criticism of Sartre's. Um, so it has, I think, it, 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 the, the relationship that divides opinion. And, you know, since since the 40s, when Beauvoir and Sartre uh, kind of rose to fame in France and beyond, they have been a very divisive couple, um, partly for their political choices, but partly also because of this legend of what their relationship was like. Well, I mean, they were making a decision in the late 1920s, which... I mean, that is a radical decision for the time that they were in. One of the things I want to pick up on there was that you say in an interview that she gave later in life, she was asked if there was anything she wished in hindsight that she had included in her memoirs. And her answer was, quote, a frank and balanced account of my own sexuality, a truly sincere one from a feminist point of view. And that, you know, you were talking there about sexual appetite and blaming Sartre for that. But it sounds like although he loved the chase and he loved a challenge of seducing women when he was quite aware of his own, you know, physical deficiencies and he wasn't that attractive, but he obviously had a great charm to him, that often throughout Simone's writing we see that, you know, she's talking about her own sexual appetite and desires and that they weren't being met by Sartre at many points in her life and that does link back to the the foundation of friendship which seems to have been so constant throughout their entire relationship that even when you know the sex was no longer there or the the physical intimacy was no longer an important part of their story that there was something else that was enduring but I wanted to ask about that that kind of account of her sexuality and the way that she um, experienced it and wrote about it 
And when you were doing your research and looking at it, to you, did did you kind of agree that maybe she wasn't, she didn't give a full and frank balanced account of her own sexuality when she was writing of her own life? Absolutely, yes. And there are some reasons why that might be the case. So um, on the Sartre relationship, one of the new sources that's become available very recently in 2018 uh, was the letters that Beauvoir sent to Claude Lanzmann, uh, who's the only man she ever lived with. She lived with him in the 1950s. He's he's also the only the only man that she ever um, used, the only lover, I should say, which she used the um, informal form of you in French. So she used vous with him, where she always used vous with Sartre. And the Lanzmann letters, in, in one of them, there's a line where she says that her relationship with Sartre, she talks about it being uh, sexually dissatisfying, but also that it was never a reciprocal relationship. So I think she found that relationship disappointing on many levels, although deeply fulfilling on others. <laughs> but in terms of the sexuality question, uh, we know now that she she did not tell the full story of her lesbian relationships in her, memo- in her memoirs. And that's brought accusations against her, like that she was lying or duplicitous. But frankly, I think that that's a fairly... It's it's too simplistic, like even if it were true, uh, because the fact is that in in French law there are privacy laws that are much stricter than they are in other parts of the world, and so she can't write about the relationships that she's had with other women without uh, fearing for uh, legal consequences. But also, she cared about these women. She had relationships with all of them until they or she died, and so. She certainly didn't include uh, a frank account of her sexuality. Uh, but I think another part of the picture that's worth bearing in mind here is that when The Second Sex was published, even though it was published in a, an academic voice, she was shamed. Uh, she referred to the reception of The Second Sex as the, the second volume as the scandal uh, because people wrote to her calling her well, either, you know, frigid and nymphomaniac. She had propositions uh, from people who called themselves active members of the first sex. Um, François Mauriac, uh, the, the Catholic, esteemed Catholic novelist, wrote a letter to, to one of Beauvoir's colleagues on Les Temps Modernes and said that uh, his employer's vagina had no secrets. And so there was this very personal attack on Beauvoir, even in the second sex, for, for saying that women's sexuality should be discussed. <laughs> yeah. So if she had been frank about her own, uh, I think, well, I can't imagine really what the, what the reception to that would have been. But anyway. Yeah, no, it is really shocking. And you're just talking about there the negative reception to the second sex and particularly, you know, conversations around female sexuality and um, women and their experience of sex and relationships. It was interesting that you said that there was a more welcoming readership, which was the next generation of younger people who read the book as being something without precedent, something that talked frankly about female experiences that had been taboo, which of course it was very much taboo for um, Beauvoir when she was growing up and in a Catholic environment, you know, she really had no idea in her early years how babies were even made. But one of the things that I thought was interesting was that, you know, some people you say in France were so desperate for information about their own bodies that they read it as a sex manual 
And I wanted to ask about that, given that The Second Sex was published late in the 1940s. I mean, what was Simone de Beauvoir saying about sex and female sexuality that was so eye-opening to younger French people? So I think that depends on which French people. And so one of the things that I think is insightful about Beauvoir's philosophy is that in, in a sense, she's a particularist. So she thinks that each woman occupies a particular situation, which is going to make it difficult to give general answers uh, to the question of, you know, what the, what the vocation is or what oppression means in the context of that woman's life. So, but I think that, that uh, you know, talking about female pleasure, so Michelle Leduf is a French feminist who's written on this and who refers to women reading it to get information about their bodies. And my impression is that there just wasn't, um, there wasn't very much available that talked about female bodies from a female point of view. And one of the criticisms that Beauvoir makes in The Second Sex is of the philosophies of the body in her contemporaries, so Sartre and Merleau-Ponty. You know, Western philosophy has a, uh, has a reputation for being fairly anti-embodiment. Mm. Uh, it's about the life of the mind. And in the 1940s and 43 and 45, Sartre and Merleau-Ponty both uh, wrote phenomenologies of the body. And Beauvoir criticized them for claiming that you could do a phenomenology of the body because there are certain embodied experiences that not everyone shares. <laughs> and in, I think one of the things that people found insightful and still do is um, her analysis of the way that women, young women going through puberty um, often experience uh, a process of recognizing that their bodies are objects in the eyes of others. And so they can feel alienated from their own bodies um, because they know that they're not objects. They know that they are human beings uh, with, a, you know, a living consciousness and desires for the world. And so one of the processes that Beauvoir describes is this, this feeling of alienation in female embodiment, because you don't want to affirm that you're an object in the eyes of others. But a lot of culture, especially when it comes to sex and romantic life, encourages women to participate in their own objectification. Yeah, it reminded me when you were recounting her life as a teacher that she would turn up to class wearing these beautiful, you know, silk shirts and she would put on makeup and, you know, she was choosing her own way of being and dressing that fulfilled her needs and desires. And it's it reminded me of that constant tension that a lot of women might feel around you know, having a certain way that makes them feel good about themselves, but then also at the same sense or in the same turn, seemingly encouraging attention. Yes. Now, I, this is, it's true. This is, this is one of those areas of feminism beauty where there's, uh, there are many contradicting points of view. Um, but I do think that having a long memory helps, or at least can help here. So, you know, it used to be in ancient Egypt that both men and women wore coal on their eyes because they, they liked the way the eyes looked. Mm. And in you know the history of the high heel was that it was first worn by men who wanted to be taller, um, and so I think um, it's not the case that, that women are alone in in attempting to present themselves in certain ways. Of course, this is a very it's culturally variable. But Beauvoir, she did, uh, yeah, she certainly took pleasure in how she dressed. Uh, but I, I mean, it's very difficult to know what one does for one's own sake and what one does because of how you want to look in the eyes of others. I think that's one of the perpetually ambiguous things being human. 
Yeah, there's no clear answer, I don't think. I wanted to bring in a couple of the key points that are quite illuminating in this book around the role of Beauvoir's philosophy and thought in Jean-Paul Sartre's work because it's often thought, as you've already said at the beginning of this conversation, that people have assumed that uh, Simone de Beauvoir was kind of following Sartre. She was having these long and lengthy philosophical conversations with him, but really he was the one influencing her and it was very much a one-sided situation. And I wanted to bring in what is really the most well, one of the most important moments in Sartre's uh, philosophy, which is his lecture, Existentialism is a Humanism, and also his very, very hefty book, Being a Nothingness. And the role that Simone de Beauvoir played in those discussions around freedom, particularly you bring up a really great, or a couple of really great examples, Bad Faith being one of those early examples where, you know, Sartre and Beauvoir had already been speaking about and um, having a dialogue about bad faith in the 1930s. Yes. So one of the difficulties with them. with working on Beauvoir and Sartre and the question of influence between them, because uh, this is this has been the subject of academic exploration for uh, some decades now, uh, is that in the 1930s, we don't have very much in the way of documentary evidence to look for, you know, who's using which term first or a, cl- a clear development of a concept. And in the research that exists in this area, there are some people who go so far as to say that Sartre stole the philosophy of being in nothingness from Beauvoir. So Edward and Kate Fulbrook make this claim. And um, some others uh, might not put it quite that way, but in, in some parts of the kind of Beauvoir studies world, Sartre is definitely a bad guy. <laughs> <laughs> and um, uh, But increasingly in in the scholarly literature, people are starting to see parts of their work as mutually influenced. Um, and I think there are some cases where you can say, look, Beauvoir had this idea. And, you know, if Sartre writes her letter and says, thank you, your idea of this has made me think this, which he does in some cases, then I think that gives us pretty good evidence of uh, direction of influence. Mm. But uh, increasingly in French uh, work on this topic, people are using a compound adjective, Beauvoir au Sartrean, to refer to an existentialism that was the result of both their work. Mm. And I think um, I'm very interested in this from the point of view of thinking about what it means to do philosophy, because we, we have research now about uh, on the pedagogy side, which shows that when you have philosophical friendships, students who form friendships with other students who are studying philosophy, uh, they tend to perform much better because they're not just doing things in the classroom. They're really discussing the ideas and and pushing each other in ways that help them grow. And I think uh, what Beauvoir and Sartre had was the relationship where they built on their commonalities and they didn't agree about everything. I think it's very important to acknowledge that. <laughs> but they agreed about enough to be able to further some joint projects together. Uh, so I'm, I'm not so interested in saying so-and-so thought this first, except insofar as it's important because... The history of Beauvoir's reception has been largely a sexist reception, where she has been taken to be Sartre's megaphone, basically. Yeah, and even in that conversation when they felt like they'd come across something and really started to understand what living in bad faith meant, you know, she used the word we when she was recounting the conversations that she had been having. And I think, you know, a lot of people, as you say, have criticised Sartre for not giving Beauvoir enough credit 
for the things that she did with his work, um, which may or may not be fair. But I did want to to highlight her role in ethics and the fact that she really thoroughly seemed to disagree with his very radical conception of freedom because it didn't have at its kind of, maybe not its core, but certainly as an essential component, an ethical component. And you said in Being in Nothingness, it really was about two pages, was it, that was dedicated to ethics and that Beauvoir really was the one who developed that. Yes, that's right. So Sartre became known for a kind of radical freedom, according to which whatever circumstances you might face in life, you are free to choose how you respond to those circumstances. That's like somewhat simplistic, but um, Beauvoir disagreed, and she said uh, her challenge to him in the 1930s, before she wrote a philosophical essay disagreeing with him, was that well, what kind of freedom can a woman in a harem achieve? She thought that situations are different and therefore so are freedoms because we are we're, we're limited by the context in which we make decisions and we're also limited by our, our pasts and our access to the possibility so one of the things that i think is wonderful in Beauvoir's philosophy is how much consideration she gives to the importance of possibility and imagination and in, in becoming a self and one of the things that she does in the second sex is to say women's possibilities are constrained not just through legislation, but by the way that culture presents their possibilities. And so in that work, she's building on this criticism that she makes of Sartre in 1944, just after Being in Nothingness is published, where she develops her uh, existentialist ethics. And she she says that existentialism doesn't imply an ethics, and therefore in this essay that that she's trying to provide that. And it has been largely, not entirely in, in scholarly circles, but overlooked because it wasn't translated into English until 2006. So what that means is that for about 70 years of the reception of French existentialism, we had much more access to Sartre's writings, and we didn't see Beauvoir's role so clearly in the 1940s and, yeah, contributing to that. Yeah. And is that essay, is the Pyrrhus and Sinius essay? That's right, yes. I hadn't even heard of it, which is surprising because I have read a bit of her work. So I was like, wow, I've got to read another thing by Simone de Beauvoir. But you say that she had written in that essay that every person needs the freedom of other people. And in a sense, we always want it because it's only the freedom of others that prevents us from atrophying into thinking of ourselves as things, as objects. And, you know, it did, it's really sounded like she did give so much more complexity to the idea of freedom than just what Sartre had offered, even though he did, you know, offer a very (laughs) extensive systematic approach to freedom in being and nothingness. Yeah, I think in in Sartre's case, so being and nothingness is a complex work of philosophy, but it doesn't allow for much hope for the the possibility of an ethical life. Uh, or a life with others that is, I mean, he, he says explicitly that um, being with others is, is conflict. Hmm. Um, and he's, he's responding to conversations and, and philosophy, like Heidegger, who claimed that uh, there's a kind of fundamental mit sign or uh, being with others that characterizes human existence. And Sartre said, no, we're alienated from others. Like that is the human condition is a state of alienation and conflict. And Beauvoir disagrees with Sartre about this. She says that the human condition is a condition of possibility. And that if, if it weren't for the fact that we can look at other people 
and see our possibilities reflected in their eyes, you know, or in conversation or in joint projects for the future, you know, whether they're political or personal, then human life would be much worse. Mm. <laughs> so she's, she's disagreeing with him about the nature of, um, of being with others and, and about the concept of freedom. And uh, yeah, I think she definitely got it right. <laughs> yeah. It is really interesting. I'm so glad that she did continue to develop those ideas. Um, One of the other things to close out our discussion that I wanted to raise, because it does seem like it's a really important point, was the development of the second sex as like an idea for a book. And you say that she had liked a book called Manhood by Michelle Levy and was inspired to write about a similar thing herself um, and her question was, what has it meant to me to be a woman? And of course, the story that many people really think of is, oh, well, Sarch said you need to to think about writing about this from, you know, you should think about your life as a woman and go to the Bibliothèque Nationale. Um, I remember reading this story and going, oh, yes, well, he came up with the idea. But it wasn't really that simplistic. And it also brings us to another kind of misconception that I wanted to draw in together to that that question, which was that really important line about one is not born a woman, but becomes a woman. That is another kind of really important line that seems to be hotly debated and a bit of a misconception as to what it really meant to Beauvoir when she wrote it because of the different translations we've had access to. So I just wanted to bring in those two kind of things that seem to have distorted the reception of of her work, particularly in the English-speaking world, and our conception of why she wrote The Second Sex, but also what she was really thinking when she wrote that line. So on the the inspirations for The Second Sex, I think the Michel Lerie book was important, but also uh, in a letter to Nelson Algren, she describes the project somewhat differently. So in in the 1940s, she spent uh, some time in the United States giving lectures on women's writing in France and existentialism and uh, various things, mainly in New England. And she spent time in New York uh, with a friend of hers, uh, Richard Wright, uh, who was a Black man who wrote the novel Black Boy. And Richard Wright took her to Harlem, to the Abyssinian Baptist Church, uh, where there uh, was a very inspiring preacher, Adam Clayton Powell. And this was during the Harlem Renaissance, uh, when a lot of amazing writing was coming out. And there there was a lot, like, uh, Harlem Renaissance theology actually inspired a lot of people. So on, on another front, Diedrich Bonhoeffer, who is a German Protestant theologian, was studying in the States uh, just a bit before this, and then uh, went back to Germany to fight fascism, uh, partly, I think, because of the political message of this Christianity. And so Beauvoir saw the oppression of Black people in America, and she she read Gunnar Myrdal's book, An American Dilemma, which was about the race question in the United States. And in her letter to Nelson Algren, she said, I want to write a book as important as this book but about women. And so there were multiple conversations and multiple intellectual friendships, I think, that um, that, that fed into her desire to, to write this project. Uh, but I do think that the, the, the dominant reading in the English-speaking world is mistaken. Um, I think that partly for literary reasons. So Beauvoir frequently uses antiphrasis, where she takes a famous phrase uh, that she assumes her French readership will recognize uh, and she inverts it. So I've, I've mentioned already the phrase that one is not born, but rather becomes free. 
And, you know, her philosophy is very much about what it means to become free um, in a political sense, but also in this this spiritual sense, which is characteristic of, of French philosophy in the period. And it's also interesting that in the first volume of The Second Sex, she's already used exactly that formulation of sentence where she says that one is not born, but rather becomes a genius. And she's she's asking the question, why is it that women are encouraged to think that they can't be geniuses? And she, she refers to Schopenhauer, who says that women can have uh, talent, but they can't be geniuses. And she's, this is another kind of question that's in the air in French philosophy, because genius is being discussed in Nietzsche and Schopenhauer. So she is interested in what it means to become a woman, because she's interested in what, what human becoming means in general. But I don't think that the, the dominant reading, uh, particularly as made by Judith Butler, is actually very sensitive to Beauvoir's philosophical project. Uh, and in one of Butler's earliest essays, she mentions, like the, the first paragraph mentions Beauvoir, but then she goes on for about eight pages to talk about Sartre's philosophy um, and to assume that, that this is going to help us understand Beauvoir's project. That's really interesting. Um, you know, with that line, a woman versus woman, which has been translated differently, and it seems like even the latest English translation of the second sex is not perfect. And of course, any translation is is imperfect. You would really need to speak French to, I'm sure, appreciate some of the subtleties of her language. But in terms of how things do get lost in translation, I mean, you were talking in this book about the fact that she sees women as individuals and that, as you say, all women have a different circumstance, are dealing with a different context, and it almost feels like an early version of um, intersectionality. When I was reading, I was like, oh, she's so forward thinking for her time. But I wanted to ask about that because, you know, there is a difference between becoming a woman versus woman and what your thoughts are on that debate around which is the more correct interpretation. So my my view is that because Beauvoir is uh, committed to um, truth at the level of the concrete and particular, <laughs> that that it makes sense to include the A, uh, that one is not born but rather becomes a woman. Both of them make grammatical sense, but philosophically it seems to me to make more sense to focus on the particularity of, of um, mm. that's my view. <laughs> I think I would agree. Um, mm. And by reading this book, I think you do get the sense that that, that is the right version, but of course it, I'm sure it will still be contested for many years to come. To finish this conversation, I wanted to leave on one thought, um, and it's the thought we really started off with, which is the fact that Simone de Beauvoir thought of Jean-Paul Sartre as really being the incomparable friend of my thought. and it brought me to one of those examples in her life when you know she was having these conversations with such philosophical conversations and she was also getting caught up in you know love and her own life and you know there are many things that she was feeling emotionally that she got caught up in at different points in her life when things got quite tumultuous and of course Sarch felt like oh well you can just not feel those emotions and that's just a choice but one of the things I thought was really interesting and it felt like it was such an important thing in their relationship was when in the prime of life Beauvoir wrote that Sarch began to be irritated by her dependence on him not because she was dependent, but because he thought she was less full of ideas than she had been when they met, that she was in danger of being the kind of woman who relinquished her independence and contented herself with being a man's helpmate, and that he was really seeking to encourage her to have that 
complete independence that she wanted, that she herself at the beginning of her life had thought that she really desired, which was to to not get involved in marriage because that caused all of that extra life admin and, you know, it was a, a kind of a trap in, in her sense and she couldn't have a full thinking life. What are your thoughts, I guess, about that incomparable friend of my thought? And do you feel like when you were researching this and looking through these beautiful letters and diary entries that um, I know, you know, no relationship is perfect, but it does feel like it is a particularly special relationship and that, you know, things like that, encouraging someone to be what they wanted, not what you want them to be, is such a, an important thing. Yes, I think it is a, a tremendously important thing. And in that respect, um, not in all respects, I hasten to add, uh, I do think it's an admirable relationship because one of the things that Sartre said about Beauvoir from his point of view in interviews later in life about um, the way they worked together was that when he gave her a manuscript, because he wouldn't pub- publish anything without her reading it um, until late in his life, someone said, "Well, why why did you do that? Because um, because you know because she was such a good reader. You know what 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 was what was the motivation here?" And he he said, "Because she knew what my aims were sometimes better than I did myself." Hmm. And you know, from a feminist point of view, you can look at this cynically and you can think, um, "You mean Beauvoir was doing the philosophy for you?" <laughs> <laughs> or you can look at the fact that both of them wrote uh, similar things uh, about or to each other and that they were they were stretched by the relationship with each other and to see that as something to see that as something beautiful and personally I'm inclined to think that we need to be critical in in the way we look at the depiction of the relationship but still to see something very much inspiring and admirable about that because I think they they had a tremendous generosity towards each other intellectually and I think that's it's a beautiful thing. Mm, it's so beautiful and if anyone was lucky enough to find a person who they could um, do that with and share that with they would be a very 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 lucky person and um, have a very special life so uh, yeah it's a lovely thing to watch and a lovely thing to engross yourself in and um, I do want to say Thank you for bringing this all together with such a critical mind, but also a very balanced and fair approach and to give us access to Simone de Beauvoir in a way that I've never had and that I think really does her life um, a lot of justice and brings a huge amount of nuance. And I've, I've got a newfound respect and admiration even more deeply than I did before and for both of them, in fact, and I really do thank you for that. Well, thank you. It means a lot uh, to hear you say that, I think, because um, it was a very intimidating thing to do to write a biography. So, thank you. I, I did read that line in early on in the book when you were saying you were almost terrified. And I thought I would be terrified because these are very formidable figures in history. Yes, they are. And also it's a moral, I mean, I think it's a moral question as well. I, I d- tend to be suspicious of, of um, you know, the human tendency to stand in judgment over others. But Yeah, nevertheless, it's good to think about the past. Thank you so much for joining me and thank you for your generous time and and thought. And I hope people can read Becoming Beauvoir, A Life, which is out through Bloomsbury Academic. And um, it is an excellent book and uh, very much well worth the read. Thank you, Amy. I really enjoyed our conversation. I'm Amy Mullins and you've been listening to the Uncommon Sense podcast. Uncommon Sense is a radio show broadcast on 3RRR FM in Melbourne every Tuesday between 9am and 12pm.